everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Katie Helper Show. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for joining. We have a great show for you today. We are talking to not only amazing guest Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst turned activist, but also the very smart Freddie DeBoer. Ray will be talking about the war in Ukraine, the new Cold War, a multipolar order, all the fun things that one can talk about. Freddie is going to be talking about politics and specifically a piece he wrote in New York Magazine about AOC being just a regular old Democrat. And before we start, I also have a surprise, which is that I'll be doing some reviewing of media, reacting to headlines with Kate Willett, who I'm going to bring on in a second. But before we do that, of course, please like the stream. Just give it a thumbs up. If you haven't already subscribed to the channel, please subscribe to the channel. To do that, you just press subscribe and then you hit the bell. Also, if you can, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That is a way that you make the show happen. Literally, we couldn't do the show without you and your Patreon support. And again, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For just $1 a month, you make the show happen. That's $12 a year. That's like, I don't know, a couple slices of pizza a year that you're donating to the show. So I can pay the lovely people who work on it. Shout out to producer Brad Bloom, to Tyler Sullivan, and to Phantomus Fanta. Phantomus does the live clipping. Tyler does the making of clips that we put out. And if you want extra content and you can afford it, we would love for you to become Patreons at the $5 a month level. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. $5 gives you access to like twice as much content, basically. So every week we give you an extended interview or an extra interview. So if you're watching live, you get to see this whole thing. If you're watching later and you want to see the whole thing, then go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So I'm going to bring on our first guest, that surprise segment that we're doing today with none other than funny, very funny lady, Kate Willett, the author of Dirtbag Anthropology and a stand-up comedian. Kate, how are you doing? Kate Willett. I'm doing well. How are you? Good, thanks. Well, we're going to just go through some media clips, some headlines, some stories So let's start off by looking at David Pluff, who worked for Barack Obama. He is talking to Jen Psaki, who, of course, worked for Joe Biden. She was his spokeswoman and then, you know, hopped on that revolving door and now has her own show on MSNBC. So let's hear what David Pluff and Jen Psaki have to say about the presidential race. And also you'll notice there's a little nugget about Bernie Sanders. See if you can find that Easter egg. Major opponent. And we thought it was DeSantis. Maybe it's Scott. The question, does everyone else get out? As you remember with Joe Biden back in 2020, you know, if Buttigieg and and Klobuchar and Beto and everybody hadn't gotten out and endorsed him right away after South Carolina, you know, I'm not sure he would have beat Bernie Sanders. So you've got to get this down to a two-person race. And I do think there's enough Republicans out there who can say the following to themselves. Create the permission structure. I love Donald Trump. Every airport in America should be named after Donald Trump. He's the greatest president ever. But he probably can't win. 
because the media and judiciary is not fair to him. And so I'm going to vote for somebody else who can beat Joe Biden. Like that, that is there for someone. Um, but, you know, you, you've got to make that happen. And really by October, early November, you've got to be showing momentum. OK, so there you have Obama's former campaign manager, David Pluff, basically saying the Republican race has to be whittled down and saying that obviously Trump can't win. And what I thought was interesting is that this is kind of like the typical classic Democrat mistake or stupidity of thinking that GOP voters think just like them. He thinks that the GOP base cares about electability the way Dems have been trained to care about it or Dems have trained voters to care about it. The truth is Trump actually is pretty electable, it looks like. If we take a look at this New York Times Siena College poll of registered voters, check that out. Yeah. Is there an equivalent? Like, uh, is, like I'm trying to think if there's like a Republican equivalent of like Pod Save America that talks about like electability. I don't know. Like Pod, what would it be even? Some just like crappy, like bigoted guy in the middle of nowhere. Todd Save America. Just some guy named Todd that really sucks. Pod Make America Great Again. Yeah. But it's just so funny because they always, they're so out of touch, the Democrats. They never know how to speak about or to Trump voters. They also don't really care about that. Yeah. But I also thought that, did you catch the hidden gem about Bernie? I did, yeah. It's weird because I feel like they wouldn't have said that so close to the time, but maybe I, I missed that. that. That felt like it was verboten when it was going down. Right. So he just admitted David Pluff, this major DNC mover and shaker, Obama's former campaign manager, just admitted that basically all the other candidates had to coordinate and drop out of the race for Bernie to beat Joe Biden. And he said that out loud, as if that's not somewhat problematic. And he, he would know because obviously Obama was one of the people who behind the scenes helped make that happen. Because Obama leaves his mansion in Martha's Vineyard to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign, sabotage Keith Ellison's campaign for DNC chair, prevent NBA players from engaging in a strike, and skydive with Richard Branson. Oh, and help people not to speak woke in woke ways. Yeah, he, he just kind of pops back out there when he's got something really important to mess up for people, I would say, yeah. Otherwise, parasailing. What else is he good at? He's really good at promoting his stuff. He seems like he really loves his wife, you know? Yeah, he's, he is a wife guy. Like, I actually believe that they like each other as opposed to the Clintons who can't stand each other and are like a total, like, marriage of political convenience. Yeah, although I don't know, the Clintons, do you remember that one speech, I think it was at the Democratic National Convention, when Bill was talking about how much he wanted to have sex with Hillary when she was younger? It was so gross. I think if I heard about that, I blocked it out. Yeah, he didn't directly say have sex, but he's, you know, he implied it heavily. Wow. Well, we just heard from some Dems. Let's take a look at how some Republicans are talking about the election. Here is... Governor Chris Sununu, Republican of New Hampshire, who's running for president, although you may not know it because his numbers are so low. Here he is talking to Hugh Hewitt about whether Sununu would vote for Trump if he won the primary. Both of these names sound totally made up, by the way. Do you support Trump if he's the nominee? I will. Oh, yeah, that's not going to happen, though. Look, look, I'm I a bet you would. And we're going to have a strong Republican. But, but no, I, look, we're, I have no doubt, given where the numbers are, um, I think he, look, I don't think he, after he loses, I don't think he's going quietly. I'll tell you that. 
I, I mean, the guy, he's kind of a crybaby in that sense. He's, he's always, have, have you seen his speeches? He gets yeah, but, but Governor, did I hear you right? You out. will support yeah. him if he's the nominee. Oh, look, I'm going to support the Republican. There's, there's no you. question about that. But That's what I'm going to do, oh, yeah. too. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. but do. he's not going to be the nominee. He's really not. And look, I okay. get the national polls, but when you're polling people, um, no offense to Kansas, Nebraska, Idaho, n- nobody's paying attention to the race in, in those states. Where they're and, paying and, attention to the Republican race is where he's having the most trouble. Okay, so he's very sure that Trump isn't going to win, which is an interesting contrast because that same New York Times-Siena poll that I mentioned, let's take a look at what it shows about Republican voters. So Republicans' preference for the 2024 nominee, if it were held today, it would be Trump, 54%. He gets 54%. DeSantis is not close, but the closest at 17%. And he just let go of a ton of his campaign staff, right? Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. Chris Christie's at two. And Chris Sununu, who wants us to listen to his analysis, he's not even getting 1% because he's not included on this image right here. Yeah. Anyway, so it's good to see that Democrats and Republicans are equally in denial about Trump's viability. It's crazy that this is the third election cycle that we've been through, and people are talking about how Trump can't get it. One time he got it, one time he got very close, and now we're doing it again. And it's like, it just feels like this is just what elections are like now, as we just have to talk about Trump. He's never going away. Well, and speaking of polls and electability and the way the media misrepresents reality, let's take a look at another result from this New York Times-Siena poll, which shows how the Democrats are doing. Joe Biden is at 64 percent, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at 13 percent, and Marianne Williamson at 10 percent, which is a pretty significant place for RFK to be and Marianne Williamson to be, especially Marianne Williamson, because RFK gets a lot of media attention and he's really tapped into like a couple of demographics. Marianne Williamson is getting pretty blacked out, I would say, by the media. Like RFK just did this Fox News town hall. Marianne's not doing a Fox News town hall. And yet, despite the fact that these people are doing relatively well, the Dems won't have a debate. Yeah, they're not going to have a, a voting primary, are they? No. Yeah, I don't think so. So it's just pathetic. And, you know, sometimes when I I say this on this show or on Useful Idiots, I'm like, they should be allowed to debate and they should be covered by the media. And then people are like, oh, this person sucks. They'll say that about RFK and Marion Williamson. Like, yeah, okay, fine. They're also running against Biden and the media should be covering them and the Democratic Party should be allowing them to debate. Yeah. It's kind of a weird argument for me when people are like, well, I don't I really don't like this person. So I'm not I don't care. Yeah, I mean, I think there should be a primary. And if there's not a primary, like it should be definitely made clear to people that this is not, you know, <laughs> we can drop all pretense. So this is like any kind of, you know, democratic election process. Okay, so we got that. What's next? We also have pop culture, right? Oh, no. Before we get to the pop culture, let's talk about old people. Here is Fox News' Stuart Varney talking about old people, because as, as people probably know, Mitch McConnell froze the other day. He probably had some medical incident. It's unclear what it was, but let's see how Stuart Varney reacts to this. Good moment. Mitch McConnell, minority leader of the Senate, froze mid-sentence as he addressed the media. 
He stayed silent for about a half minute, clearly confused. He was then led away by his colleagues. Senator McConnell is 81. Two weeks ago, President Biden appeared confused and unintelligible during a meeting with Israel's president. Prior to that, he had slurred his words, lost his train of thought, stumbled and tripped. The president is 80. And we're about to see a generational shift in our political leadership. After all, politics is all about votes. The old guard needs the support of youngsters, but they're not keen on voting for 80-somethings who are not physically or mentally robust. 2024 is the last hurrah for the current generation of leaders. With the president, hard to see him holding on to the Oval Office for another six years. He says he wants to stay, but his party is not keen and is not getting the youth vote. The 90-year-old Dianne Feinstein is retiring. She simply couldn't do the job. Senator McConnell will likely face a challenge to his leadership after his freeze yesterday. Senate Budget Chair Bernie Sanders is 81. Now, there are many who wish the socialists from Vermont would retire, but his plans are uncertain. Okay, so he like goes through all these people who are old and have had cognitive issues, like Dianne Feinstein for a while, and she just recently was told, just say I, and Mitch McConnell froze. Biden has had his moments of cognitive difficulties. And then he just throws in Bernie Sanders, who is 81, and he's had health issues, but no one's ever, he, he recovered fully from that heart attack. Yeah. And he's never come off as, say what you will about him, he's not mentally at all incapacitated. That's true, but I feel like when you think of, like, you know, titans of Washington, D.C., like, very famous people that come to mind, Bernie is definitely one of them. He is one of the most, like, famous politicians right now. But it just seems weird to me, like, this guy, when he's like, many people wish he would retire, but yeah, but that's because many people are your friends at Fox News. Yes. And they just hate his politics. No one's like, he's not too sharp. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I... I actually thought that that was kind of a dig at, like, you know, the Democratic establishment. Not that I think that they're, you know, on on our side or anything. These, like, Republican weirdos, but... That they were saying know. many Democrats want him to... I thought that's what they were you saying. You think that he was saying many Democrats want him to... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Not that that was... Not that that's, like, because of their earnest uh, love of the working class, you know? <laughs> not, not because of solidarity, but... I can't hear Katie. I don't know if you guys can. No, I can't either, Kate. Sorry, everyone. Hey, Brad. What's up? Not much. <laughs> How are you doing, Kate? Pretty good. We're just partying. Yeah, man. I hate Stuart Varney. He's such a pompous blowhard. Actually, I've never seen him before. Seriously? Yeah, but this week, there was like another Fox News host. Okay, sorry about this, everyone. Okay, we're back. Was that me the whole time? I think so, yeah. Was Kate totally audible? All right, I'm sorry about that. Kate was just telling me that she had never seen or heard Stuart Varney before. Yeah, Greg Gutfeld is freaking out, though. He's been losing his mind because there's this woman named Julia Jes- Jes- Jeske. I know her from comedy a little bit, and she clips Fox News segments and puts them on the internet and she clipped a segment of him saying something wildly offensive and she just put it up there basically and he's like freaking out saying that she's 
defaming him and whatnot, but she literally just put his own <laughs> right. words on yeah. the internet. Like, it was kind of like not like he, he said it. defamation by quotation. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, and Stuart Varney is the guy who would like say poor people have it good because they have a refrigerator. Oh yeah. Oh man. The Republicans love to say that. Uh, the, the neo-libs love to say that too. I saw there was a hearty debate this week about like the sweatshop thing. Like people would rather be working in sweatshops. And, oh my God. Are you serious? Yeah. Subsistence farming. That one was, was back in action. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I think Katie is still trying to figure out her tech stuff. I don't know if any of you remember from, I believe it was last week, but we had to reschedule our broadcast, which we thought we had fixed all of these issues, but literally moments before we went live today, they came back. So thanks everyone for hanging in there. Can I say one more thing about Greg Gutfeld? Absolutely, please. I'm going to go the fuck off about a political issue that I care about. It's very specific to me. Greg Gutfeld, what he said to Juliet. She clipped him saying it was like related to the like people getting skills in slavery. Like, I think it was related to that whole discourse. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then she just clipped him. I don't remember exactly what he said in the clip, but I, I, I watched it and it was fucking horrible. It was exactly as bad as you would expect. And then Gutfeld goes off on Juliet because she's post pictures of her cats. And it's like, you're a cat lady. And I feel like that is like the standard conservative move these days, which really bothers me because I am a proud owner of two incredible animals who adore me. I also have plenty of romance in my life, but you know what? It doesn't stop me from loving my cats. They're wonderful little guys. And I don't get what the conservative hate campaign is towards these incredible tiny little guys. I mean, now that you mention it in that context, yeah, like that sort of whole like cat lady meme or put down. Yeah, is like just kind of taking down women and implying that like they don't have any other positive aspects in their life. Like that's trash. Dude, there's been plenty of times where I totally had the option of sleeping over with someone that I was seeing and I decided to come home <laughs> and care yeah. for my adorable little pets. Because they're so cute. And when I got them, they were only this big. Why are men so threatened by tiny little guys? What the hell is going on? Only very, very men in name only would be threatened by such a thing. Minos, minos, men in name only. <laughs> yeah, minos. Minos, yeah. minos, yeah. Little Pearl does smell pretty bad sometimes when she farts. So I can see why a man would be threatened by that, but just on a regular day, no. I'm pretty sure Greg Gutfeld smells like shit, too. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would smell Little Pearl over Greg Gutfeld any day. Absolutely. I'm going to try. Um, tell me if it works for me to just talk into. Can you guys hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. And it's crappy, right? But whatever. We're going to go with it. Guys, this is. You get to see how the sausage is made. Sometimes it's not pretty. Usually it's pretty and seamless, but uh, what other show brings you this authenticity? And we know what Brad will be doing in the coming days. We'll be fixing these problems again. Yeah. So it's all good. Um, are we going to finish the Varney? I think we basically, did we come to the, a close about Varney? I mean, he's trash. He sucks. And we love him, that we want to date <laughs> yeah, him. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Well, we have one more clip for you. It's a news entertainment hybrid clip. This person I don't know about, Stephen um, Amel, 
from Arrow. He's an actor. Do you know who he is, Kate? No. Well, I only know from this. Like, I know from this news cycle, yes. He's an actor, and he's in a show called Arrow, or a movie called Arrow, but I guess he's famous. And he was asked if he supported the Writers Guild and SAG After Strikes. And let's hear what he had to say. It's really interesting. Yeah, I'm going to that is happening. Yeah, so I, I feel like I'm insulated in Hollywood because uh, that's where I live. I literally live in Hollywood. Like all the stereotypes that exist. Um, so I, I feel like a lot of people in this room aren't aware of the strike. Um, He's in Hollywood and he feels like a lot of people in the room aren't aware of a strike. And he's being asked about the strike. Okay. I support my union. I do. And I stand with them. I do not support striking. I don't. What? I think that it is a uh, reductive negotiating tactic. And um, I find the entire thing incredibly uh, uh, frustrating. And I think that the thinking as it pertains to shows like the show that I'm on that premiered last night, I think that is... I think that it is, uh, I think it's myopic. And um, I stand with my union. No, you do not. Yeah, no, he doesn't. So, a couple things. Your union voted to strike. You are definitionally not standing with your union if you don't support the strike that they are engaged in. Also, this guy is clearly got a thesaurus or asked his publicist for some smart sounding words. Like when he said, I find it reductive, like you don't know what that word means. I just know just from the way you say it, like no disrespect to, to people who don't know what that word means. It's not that hard a word, but the way he delivers it, you know that he's like, okay, this sounds smart. This sounds really smart. I'm going to call it reductive. Oh, I see. I feel like guys like this always know the word reductive. They always, they always, they also always know the word nuance. This type of dude is always like, loves to talk about that things are, are very complicated. Every sexual assault situation, this is a type of guy. Right. It's not black and white. Yeah. It's not black and white. Yeah. <laughs> it made me think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, but the word myopic, that would mean you are short-sighted. That really stuck out to me because it reminded me of a few months ago when you had spoken to the person on the board of directors of one of the writers' uh, boards, John Rogers. Yeah. I believe one of the things that he said on the program was something to the effect of, like, he and his colleagues understand that what they're doing right now, it may temporarily hurt them in the short term but if they do not take this hard line stance right now and get in writing the things that they're asking for they understand that they are dooming generations of people to being taken advantage of which that's why him saying that they are being myopic it's like what yeah yeah it literally could not be more so right i knew he said another word that you could tell his publicist handed him or he looked up in a thesaurus but, like, you can tell he doesn't know what that word means. And also, it's literally the opposite of it, as you pointed out. This requires so much discipline and a long haul. Yeah. There's nothing short-sighted about this. It's a very long, relentless sacrifice that these people are making. He's apparently a wrestler also. Okay. I mean, I guess that... He should stick to that. 
you mean like wrestling wrestling or like wwe wrestling like the acting kind or the actual kind whatever i just wish it was unfortunate that there was no one there that was willing to uh you know everyone was applauding what he was saying it would have been nice if well this guy also apparently once said that even though he thought racism is a systemic problem he had never personally quote seen it in action I see some folks in the comment pointing out how generic looking he is. My guess is that this is a play to, you know, differentiate himself by building a conservative audience. Yeah. Yeah. He's all around a pretty unappealing guy because in addition to these political things, he also was asked to leave a Delta airline flight because he was yelling at his wife. Guys like this always suck. It takes a lot of yelling to be, when you're famous, to be asked to leave an airplane. Yeah, that's like Alec Baldwin level. Well, I mean. Pretty sure he got kicked off a plane or something. Oh, yeah. Okay, you're comparing it to that, I was going to say. Yeah, let's... Oh, not the... Sorry, not the other. But it's okay, because you know what his excuse was? He explained on a podcast that he had been intoxicated. Oh. So he's only... You know, there is that expression, in vino veritas. Asshole drunks are assholes. Yeah, it just brings out what's already there. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, Stephen, we'd love to have you on the show. Yeah. You seem like a stand-up guy. And he's Canadian, so... In all honesty, if he truly was willing to, like, engage in a good-faith discussion, and maybe if it's a matter of him simply not understanding some of the things that we alluded to here, that would be great. You know, if it's simply a matter of, like, misunderstanding or something, but if it's him being knowingly an idiot, well then, yeah, nothing positive or productive is going to come from talking to somebody like that. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully if all of the tech issues are settled, then great. If they come back, I will try and come back on, but thanks for chatting. Well, Kate, any final words before we shift into my first interview? And thank you so much, Brad. Um, this was so fun. Please check out my podcast reply guys. Um, we've been, we took a break for the summer. We're back with some great new episodes. We had a really good episode last week with a journalist, Ken Klippenstein about the strikes. So please come on and check it out. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I'll see you later. All right. Bye Kate. Okay. So excited to bring on Ray McGovern, who is a former CAA analyst turned activist. He headed the CIA branch analyzing Russian foreign policy in the 70s. From 1981 to 1985, he presented in person the early morning briefings of the president's daily brief. Ray was awarded the Intelligence Commendation Medallion at retirement. In an act of conscience in early 2006, Ray returned the medallion, explaining, I do not want to be associated, however remotely, with an agency engaged in torture. In January 2003, two months before the U.S. attacked Iraq, he co-founded Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity to warn the president that the quote-unquote intelligence on Iraq was fraudulent. So, without any further ado, Ray McGovern, hello. Good to see you, Katie. Good to see you, too. Thank you so much for joining us. There are so many questions I have for you, but I thought maybe it would be interesting to go through how you wound up working at the CIA and specializing in Russia. What I have to offer, Katie, is uh, six decades, uh, six times 10 of experience watching Russian leaders uh, analyzing Soviet and then Russian foreign policy. And uh, there aren't too many of us left to know how to do that right. 
uh, witness the fact that we're in the fix we're in. So I'll be happy to comment on your, your first question there. When I was in college, I had a choice between majoring or taking as a foreign language requirement, modern foreign language, I was already taking Latin and Greek, French. And I had two years of French, and that's enough. So they said Russian. Why don't you do Russian? So I did Russian. Long story short, I loved it. It's a beautiful language, second only, in my view, to French in its beauty. I studied all about other things having to do with Russia. And uh, I took my master's in that. And that was exactly the time when John F. Kennedy asked us all, uh, maybe you know, not ask so much what your country can do for you, but what you could do for your country. Now, believe it or not, that didn't, that didn't sound corny at the time, Katie. It wasn't. It was real. And a whole bunch of us went down to Washington at that time. It was a, a, a good opportunity to use what I had, my Russian experience, to be a, an analyst at the CIA. I say analyst because you know, I didn't overthrow any governments and I certainly didn't torture anybody. That's a whole different kind of, uh, I'd say on the other side of the turnstiles. Yes, we had turnstiles in the building where we couldn't even go to the operations people and the operations people. Oh, I thought you were speaking metaphorically, but literal turnstiles. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's how that's how demarcated it was. We didn't know anything more about the operations than what we read in the New York Times, Washington Post. Sometimes we had hints. Very seldom were we given a chance to comment on this or that covert action, probably because they thought we would pour cold water over it, say, well, that might work for this week. What about next month or what about next year? So that's the long story short, how I came in. I was really, really enticed by the notion of being able to look at everything available on Soviet foreign policy at the time. My particular portfolio, to begin with, was Sino-Soviet relations, you know, relations between Russia and China. It was a big deal. So I lucked out, you know, and during those first two decades, it turned out to be true that we could do we could do honest analysis. We could report directly to the president, not through the State Department, not through the Pentagon, directly to the president the way Truman wanted it. And we could give the president what Truman called untreated intelligence. That means tell it like it is. Now, just before I left, things started to fall apart. And then to watch my former colleagues, mind you, manufacture intelligence to justify an unnecessary war in Iraq. That was beyond the pale. So we formed this little unit, little at first, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. That was uh, January 2003. We warned the president with three memos, written just the way we used to when we were on active duty. Look, <laughs> Colin Powell, we give him a C minus for his content. Don't trust them look for counsel elsewhere. And so uh, we tried to warn Bush, but we gave him the benefit of the doubt at the beginning, but <laughs> we could only conclude that he and Cheney were in it, uh, in it to their necks to begin with. But that started us, the IPS, on the path of commenting on what presidents were trying to do and telling them in the way we used to when we did unvarnished intelligence how stupid some of their advisors were and 
Never have we contended with such stupid advisors as Blinken, Sullivan, Noland, Austin, and, and the rest of that crew. They can get us into a nuclear war if we're not careful. Yeah, so I want to ask you about that, the connection between what happened in Iraq and what's happening in Ukraine. But before I ask you about that, and I think this is actually a common thread also, there is this idea that, you know, Bush was just mistaken. The intelligence was bad, that there wasn't dishonesty or lying. It was kind of an honest mistake, the Iraq war. What is your response to that assessment? Well, Katie, there was a five-year-long study by the Senate Intelligence Committee. It reported in June of 2008, and I quote, the intelligence used to justify the war in Iraq was unsubstantiated, contradicted, or even non-existent, period, end quote. Senator Jay Rockefeller, head of that committee, a bipartisan report. Now, I ask you, Katie, what does non-existent intelligence look like? They manufactured it. It was, it was just awful. And so many people died, okay? So you have people uh, playing around with the intelligence, and it all, all began in the 80s. I got out just in time. I didn't have to abide by all this stuff. Uh, it began under a fellow named Bobby Gates, who later became Secretary of Defense, and who worked, worked slavishly for Bill Casey, the head of the CIA at the time, who uh, saw a, a Russian or a Soviet in those days under every rock in, in Nicaragua. And, Kay, and Bob Gates would say, oh, Mr. Casey, I see three, three Soviets under that rock. And so Casey made him head of analysis. That's an exaggeration, but not by much, Katie. It was that bad. You've said of yourself, I'm going to quote you, you said that when it comes to the war in Ukraine, you are, quote, at odds with the prevailing narrative, as you were before Iraq. And you suggest that those looking for an off-ramp from the Ukraine war should look at the, quote, lessons learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago. So what are those lessons? Well, thanks for asking that, Katie, because I think that this is something uh, all your viewers can relate to. We've heard people say, you know, uh, we know that NATO, that is the U.S., has put medium-range missiles sites in Romania and Poland. Uh, distance to target, let's say Moscow, seven to ten minutes when the missiles become hypersonic, five minutes. We know that. Putin has said it himself. Our specialists know that. So people say, well, what if, what if the Russians have put those kinds of missiles in Mexico? Maybe they overthrew the government in Mexico like we overthrew the government in Ukraine in 2014 or Canada. What about that? And my re reaction to that is, that's a good question, but you don't have to be hypothetical about it. What do you mean? <laughs> it happened 61 years ago. Khrushchev, the head of the Soviet Union at the time, thought he'd, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. He would put these same kinds of medium and intermediate range ballistic missiles in Cuba. <laughs> and guess what? He did. <laughs> and guess what? 
The CIA didn't find them until they were there. And guess what? They were armed. They were armed. I mean, they had the nuclear warheads on those missiles. So how did uh, President Kennedy react? Well, he saw an immediate, an immediate strategic, uh, I would say, existential threat to the United States. And he said, look, pull those missiles out of there. I'm going to put a blockade in. Blockade? That's against international law. I'm going to put a, I'll put a, I'll call it, uh, I'll call it quarantine. How's that? <laughs> quarantine is blockade. And I'm going to assemble an invasion force in Florida to invade Cuba. And I'm going to threaten to use nuclear weapons to destroy the Soviet Union, maybe China too, okay? Now, you're not supposed to do any of that, okay? It's all illegal. It's against what the UN Charter says. But he did it, and there wasn't anybody who would say, now, wait a second, President Kennedy. This is unprovoked. You're going AP on the Hershey Highway, as we used to say in the Bronx. You, you, you can't do illegal things. To, I know it's a threat. Well, put yourself in Putin's place. It's not really hard. The range of these Soviet missiles was the same as the ones that could be put in Romania and Poland, we don't know what missiles are in those holes because they're covered over, okay? The Russians have been saying, remove those missiles. And we, this is sort of an interesting footnote to this, nobody knows this because nobody reads what the Russians say about the summits that they have with President uh, Biden. After a summit that, that Putin insisted on, on the 30th of December, 2021, there was the readout saying, Mr. Biden said that the U.S. has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. As I said, there are already missile sites in Romania and in Poland, okay? Wow, that was a biggie. The negotiations were just about to start on the 9th and the 10th of January, so it was about 10 days later. And guess what? The, Ru the Russians were... New Year's Eve was never better, the 30th, 31st of December. They said, look, looks like negotiations are going, going really well. What happened? Well, the next time that Biden and Putin talked together was the 12th of February, 2002, okay, 22. And what was the readout of that? Uh, Mr. Biden refused to discuss his earlier undertaking that he would not put offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. Whoa, so that sort of fell off the table. Uh, that was what? That was the 12th of February. The invasion came on the 24th, so 12 days before. Uh, that's one reason that uh, Putin decided that this is the kind of existential threat that President Kennedy experienced in, in 1962. Uh, my primary duty is to protect my country and to protect the Russians that are being bombed daily in the Donbass part of Ukraine and to make sure that the Nazis don't cause even more trouble in, in Kiev. And so, well, and so what? So we went to Beijing to open the Olympics, okay? The 4th of February, 2022. So he's up in Beijing. He had been invited to help 
Xi Jinping opened the Olympics. So they did that. They issued a statement which says our alliance or our strategic relationship has no upper limit. Whoa. Okay. That's pretty big. And then what I, I wasn't a fly on the wall, but I think this is where the conversation went. Putin. Comrade T, best friend. The Americans and NATO are really causing lots of trouble there in Ukraine. Um, they reneged on a promise not to put medium range nuclear missiles there. Uh, they've been killing our population there, our Russian speaking people, 14,000 so far since 19, since 2014. I, I think I may have to, I may have to invade to stop this stuff. What do you think? Xi Jinping. You mean, you mean after the Olympics are over, right? Of course, of course. The Olympics were over on the 20th of February. On the 21st of February, Donetsk and Luhansk, the two Donbass republics, declared independence. The next day, the Russians recognized these as independent countries. The next day, they asked the Russians to help. The next day, the Duma and the upper body of the Russian parliament said, yes, go ahead. And that day, there was the invasion of Ukraine. So where that, that, that's why I differ with a lot of people that, that you know, just, just don't understand how this thing worked. But the other thing is, is simply that I also disagree with those who say, well, ah, yeah, we can understand why he did this. Uh, we understand that it was not, as the administration says, unprovoked. We, we, know, we know how it went down there since the coup in Kiev. We know it was provoked. But still, Putin had other options. And so I said, okay, tell me about them. What other options? And, well, they, they say, well, he could have threatened nuclear war or he could have been Mahatma Gandhi or he, nobody has been able to tell me what other options. Now, I'm willing to listen. What about going to the U.N.? That's not an option. The U.N. is so much controlled by the United States and the Security Council is so stacked against, uh, against Russia and China that there's no prospect for any, any help to the U.N. The U.N. barkered that... Uh, that grain deal, right? It brokered the grain deal, but it had, didn't make it stick. Those things that were promised to the Russians, uh, access to this payment scheme and, and also a lessening of sanctions never came true. So the UN can't be dependent on doing anything that the US doesn't say, okay, you can do it. That's a non-starter. So what now is the off-ramp? Is there one? No. The smart people in Washington are beginning to say nobody's going to win. It's just impossible. But that's not true. The Russians have been able to push back this celebrated counteroffensive by Ukraine that has been in, in progress for almost two months with no progress toward reclaiming the land that the Ukrainians said they wanted to reclaim. Ukrainians are out of ammunition. Now, get this. President of the United States, two weeks ago, okay, he, uh, he said, you know, um, uh, the Ukrainians are running out of the 
the shells we need for the 155 millimeter howitzer. And, and so um, I asked my, my folks, so well, why don't we get Mars? And they said, oh, we're, we're real low on them too. So, so we found on the lower shelf here, we have these cluster munitions. And so maybe, yeah, we'll give them the cluster munitions, okay? Now, cluster munitions are bad enough, Katie. What happens when the Russians use their cluster munitions, which are far more sophisticated and plentiful, and then we say, well, what's on the on these bottom? Oh, that top shelf has the one with the lock on. Oh, those are the mini Lukes, mini Lukes, <laughs> mini Luke nuclear weapons, okay? And so let's use one of those. Do you think that these guys are smart enough to realize that that will, that will blow all of us to bits? I don't think they are. And you have the, the, the president in this frame of mind to the degree the mind works anymore, where he still thinks that the U.S. is, he quotes Madeleine Albright saying the U.S. is indispensable, that the U.S. is, is just able to do all this. I have, a, I have a quote here from something he said just this past Sunday, which was not publicized. It was at a small meeting up in Maine. It speaks volumes. It's three sentences or so. May I read it to you? Yeah, of course. Yes, please. He refers to Madeleine Albright saying that she talked about us as the essential nation. Of course, she did. It was actually the word was indispensable. <laughs> okay. Then he says, now, uh, now the world is falling apart, though. And who could possibly bring the world together? Biden asked. This is a quote. Not me. Not poor, humble Joe. But the president of the United States can. Who could do it unless the president of the United States does it? Who? What nation could do it? End quote. Then the commentator, who is a dem, Democratic-leaning professor, says, you know, his vision, the vision that Joe Biden has, reached back to 1940s in the post-war institutions that helped to rebuild Europe and create lasting alliances. Hey, professor, that's all over. Hey, professor, we're not only not indispensable anymore, we're not even exceptional except for some of the things we resort to. So what I'm saying here is there's a lot of delusion here. A lot of people advising Biden who never wore a uniform, who don't know the first thing about war, and the net effect of this is that if I were Putin, that was my job to put myself in, in the position of a Soviet or Russian leader. If I were Putin, I would say, my God, these guys uh, don't know don't know anything from Shinola, right? Uh, and they're going to tell Biden what to do on strategic matters once they know they're losing in Ukraine. And besides, now... This is a big besides, okay? There is a personal stake in this. In a word, not only Blinken, who arranged for those 51 intelligence managers to lie about Hunter Biden's laptop, and it must have affected the election somewhat, I think, not only Blinken, but Sullivan, who is responsible for all 
the pollution of information on the so-called Russian hack of the DNC, which never happened. But you have um, you have Biden and Hunter, Hunter and and father together taking bribes from the Ukrainians. Now, you know, there's such a thing as called wag the dog. It comes from a movie, Robert De Niro, and who else? Uh, Dustin Hoffman. It's a great movie. And what is that kind of notional thing? A country they call Albania gets a nuclear weapon, or they say it has a nuclear weapon. And the president is caught two weeks before the election in a dalliance with some underage uh, uh, woman and his, his, his retinue, okay? So he's got to figure out something, okay? So they say Albania is planting a nuclear weapon and they've got it in the United States and blah, 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 okay? Takes all the attention away from his dalliance and I forget what happened. But Bill Clinton did the exact same thing when they caught him with uh, Monica Lewinsky, right? What did he do? He sent cruise missiles to, to obliterate a pharmaceutical firm in Sudan. So my point is simply this. If these guys have a personal stake in not letting Donald Trump win or you know, not, not being put in jail no matter who wins, Bobby Kennedy, then they've got to pull out all the stops. And if I were a Russian leader, I try to put myself in their shoes. I said, my God, they have not, not only this, no sense of war, no sense of what happens if they do a little, little bitty nuke, but they have a personal stake in making sure that they, as long as it takes, they take care of Ukraine. That's crazy because it's going to, it's going to fall apart far, far earlier than, uh, than a year from now. Mark my words. There's actually a super chat question that's related to what you're talking about. The analytical failure says, fantastic guest, Katie, if you could ask if he agrees with John Mearsheimer that U.S. leadership is acting out of stupidity more than cynicism, re-UA. What's your response to that question? UA, I guess maybe that's the, the Ukraine. Mearsheimer is the best. Uh, he's a professor of the Realistic School of IR, which I'm told stands for International Relations. <laughs> I never took any courses in IR. My whole career was a specific realist school. We dealt with real facts, okay? So when he, he talked about, you know, how when Mearsheimer says, well, you know, these guys are uh, stupid, uh, that's only, and, you know, I like Mearsheimer, I agree with him, but it's more than stupidity, it's arrogance, it's hubris. These guys all come from the best school, they have well-heeled shoes on, you know? Uh, they're just like the brightest, the best and the brightest that was were written about got us into Vietnam. They all have these Ivy League colleges, they know best what's best for America. It's crazy. So they're arrogant. And one symptom of how the Russians look at this came in a um, in an interview that Putin had back in October of last year at Valdai, that's a discussion club. Uh, he was asked. It doesn't seem to be a uh, didn't seem to be a canned question. He said uh, they said, "Well, Mr. President, how do you how do you look at the uh, U.S. leaders taking on China at the same time as they're taking?" on us in Ukraine. And Putin looked at him and he said, well, you know, 
I used to think that there had to be some sort of subtle logic to this, but I no longer think so. I think they're crazy. Crazy. I think we attribute it to arrogance and a feeling of impunity, period, end quote. Now, I happen to agree with Putin on that, but it doesn't matter what McGovern thinks, for God's sake. It matters what Putin thinks. And when he's talking to his generals and the generals say, look, we're not interested in American intentions. We're interested in their capabilities and they could wipe us off the earth if they use their strategic weapons. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with medium range ballistic missiles in Poland and Romania? So, so Putin has to tread this very fine line. He's got to say, well, look, these guys may seem crazy in the way they act, taking on China, and it is crazy, same time they're taking on us. And, and then, you know, sort of speaking from this arrogant, sort of hubristic kind of point of view. So we need to keep our powder dry. We need to have our forces on high alert, and we need to win. We need to win in Ukraine because Ukraine is to us the same kind of existential threat that Cuba, the Soviet missiles in Cuba, were to President Kennedy. So you're saying there's no off-ramp because of the characters that we're dealing with, right? Well, the only off-ramp would be for uh, any sensible solution to start talking. Right. So if you were working for Biden, let's say, what would you tell him to do? I'd say, Mr. President, whoever told you that Russia has already lost is totally ignorant, okay? Uh, Russia has not lost. They're about to win. So we start from that. I think you need to get rid of Lloyd Austin, your Secretary of Defense, because he's a long record of falsifying intelligence, okay? They get rid of him. Uh, You get rid of Blinken, who really doesn't get it. And Sullivan, you got to be really careful about. But here's the, here's the deal, Mr. President. The Russians will have to decide within the next couple of weeks, after they rebuff what, what was called the Ukrainian counteroffensive, Mr. President, you remember now that it's been two months since they've been trying to breach the Russian lines, right? And they, they haven't gotten anywhere. You re- okay, okay. So in about three weeks, they'll use up the rest of their forces. The Russians will be able to march to the to the Dnieper River, which is a natural divide between the Donbas, eastern Ukraine, and western Ukraine. And the Russians don't want to go any farther than that. <laughs> they don't want to have anything to do with those people in West Ukraine. But they're going to want a cordon sanitaire. They want to want a DMZ or something so that artillery from Western Ukraine won't hit people in eastern Ukraine. But that's when we sit down and we talk to them. There's a deal in the making. Let, let me remind you, Mr. President, that in October, in that major speech at Valdai, uh, Putin said, look, Odessa, Odessa, that beautiful city on the Black Sea coast, it could be a, what do you call it, a yablaka razdora? Yablaka is apple, okay? The razdor is uh, discord. So, you know, the Persian war, for God's sake, and mythology and all. Okay. So it could be an apple of discord, or it could be a means to bring 
people together and come at a sensible solution, okay? <laughs> Whoa, that's a very broad hint. I'm not even sure that the Blinken and Sullivan told the president about that, but I'm telling you now, Mr. President, that that's a possibility because Ukraine without access to the sea, and that would mean Odessa, it's the only one left really, the ones that are already occupied, uh, it, it, without access to the sea, Ukraine's just a breadbasket, just a farm for the rest of Europe, okay? To be a viable nation, they need access to the sea. Why don't we make Odessa, uh, why don't we make it ruled by, uh, by whoever succeeds Zelensky and whoever acts for, for the Russians in that part of, uh, of Ukraine? Let it be a kind of a city like Trieste after one of those world wars. We can do that. We can give them access to the sea, but... If you don't buy that, Mr. President, we're going to go all the way to the Polish border. We're not going to, they're not going to play games with this anymore. One of the reasons we'll do that is because we can, unless you put troops in there. You say you don't want troops, you don't want boots on the ground. Uh, even if they, you put them in with slippers on, they're going to be annihilated. Okay, we know what slippers look like, all right? I mean, <laughs> this is not really funny. So it's come to a decision where, Biden has got to make a decision. Does he, does he start, does he tell Zelensky, look, the jig is up, you've lost, okay? We gave you 90, 98% of what you wanted, and you still lost, so talk to the Russians. Is that going to happen, or is it going to be the kind of stalemate uh, where the Russians continue to grind down the Ukrainians right into the fall, into the muddy season, and into next year? Uh, that has been Putin's preferred route, but never before has he had free reign to go all the way west. I don't know which he's going to choose, but Mr. <laughs> Mr. President, you need to know these things because you can have an you can have an effect on what happens now, and you have to realize what the reality is. And if anybody tells you, if anybody tells you that Russia has already lost, well, we told you. Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity on the 26th of January of this year that you should fire anybody that told you that Russia was going to lose. They have the upper hand. That's reality. You have to deal with it. So Bush and Biden, were they equally, did they have the same combination of stupid cynical, the same ratio of stupid cynical? in terms of the Iraq war and the Ukraine war. Now, obviously, we didn't invade Ukraine or Russia. It's different. But in terms of the intelligence issue, was one president more cynical and one president more stupid? Well, I have to just say that uh, when Bush Jr. took over, uh, the intelligence community had already been prostituted, already been corrupted. And so the people who were in, in charge uh, said, what do you want us to say? And as I quoted to you before from the Senate Intelligence Committee, they did unsubstantiated, contradicted, and non-existent intelligence, okay? Now, did Bush know that? Of course he did. Why? Because Cheney told him, this is what we're going to do. And the reason for that was threefold, okay? One was oil. Okay. One was logistics, permanent military bases in 
Iraq that were coveted by Bush and Cheney, and the other was Israel. They wouldn't have done it if they didn't have the Israelis, Israelis very much supporting it, very much arguing for it, and very much influential in the people who are plumbing for this war. Now, I did a little acronym, O-I-L. And when I explained this to a congressional committee, it was oil, Israel, and logistics. Oh, <laughs> they looked like they had never heard Israel uh, ac accused of such a thing in their lives. Long story short, I was called anti-Semitic. Can you imagine, Katie? I was called anti-Semitic. Happens to the best of us. <laughs> so, so that was the reason for Iraq. Now, the business uh, having to do with Ukraine was simply to weaken Russia. Uh, Bush himself has said we need to inflict a strategic defeat on Russia. And Putin is strong enough now. He wasn't earlier on, but they are strong enough now to resist that. They have a better conventional armed forces. And Katie, I'll tell you a secret. They have a better strategic armed forces as well with all these new weaponry that they, that they developed and that Putin very idiosyncratically, you know, very, it was not precedented that he would during a state of, not a state of the union, state of the Federation of Russia, state of the country address in 2018. He said, all right, now look, you wouldn't listen, West. Here's what we've developed. And he did little little videos. He said that 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 one goes around the South Pole. Okay, this one's fly so past. This is Mach nine. <laughs> okay, blah blah blah. And they said, okay, now, Mr. President, or West, or NATO, or Washington, will you listen now? Now I don't know why they didn't listen. Why they didn't talk to these guys? But instead, they wanted to weaken Russia. They wanted to. Make sure that uh, Putin would never last. And they've done just the opposite. If you compare the popularity ratings of, of Putin these days, they hover between 70 and 80. Okay? And Biden's is not even half that, I suppose. So, you know, the Russian people are firmly behind this. And uh, it's not going to stop. Russia is not going to lose. And once the president comes around to understanding that, then we're in much less peril. Because just two days ago, the former president of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, okay, he's sort of the bad cop. And he said, look, you know, you West, you NATO people, you ought to pray that we don't lose. Because if we lose, it's inevitable. We will use nuclear weapons. I mean, I've been saying that for years, but here's the former president and deputy head of the National Security Council in the Kremlin saying, look, pray that you don't beat us because if we lose, then we will resort to nuclear weapons. That's as clear as you could make it. I believe that to be the case. These, these people in Washington need to get that through their heads. I'm not sure they're being instructed. I'm not sure they're being even told about these warnings. And that makes me very fearful as well as angry. Understandable. Well, thank you 
so much for joining. I have so many more questions. So please, I would love to have you on again, if you'll give us the time and the honor of coming back on. This is totally off topic, but I realize that you yourself are a Catholic person who is very critical of certain conservative positions of the church. And you may not have anything to say about this, but I realize it would be interesting to ask you about your thoughts on the recently deceased Sinead O'Connor, who famously ripped up the photo of the Pope, but also claimed to really love the, the church. And she herself became a, an ordained priest. And she was doing the, when she ripped up that photo, that was a protest against the Catholic Church's positions on abortion and homosexuality and, of course, child abuse. Did you have any comments on that? Sure. Yeah, I support Sinead. I think she did the right thing. Enough is enough. Not only these archaic views on things like abortion, but uh, uh, all the abuse that has come to light. Uh, you know, that's part of the, the archaic church. Uh, there's another church. It's the one that was instituted by Pope John the 23rd. Uh, that's the one that I adhere to. Um, he, he put it out that, that you know, the real, the real task here, uh, the thing that not only Jesus of Nazareth, but Yahweh, that the, the prophet cared about was doing justice, okay? So this concept of American justice, where you have this blindfolded lady she can't look at either scale, lest she prejudice, you know. That's totally unbiblical. Justice in the biblical sense is totally biased and prejudiced in favor of the poor. The Anawim in the in the Armenian, uh, the Aramaic, Aramaic, okay. The dispossessed, the widows, the orphans the refugees, okay? That's where it's at, okay? And the rest of the stuff, you know, I don't, can't find in any scripture where we're supposed to build a lot of churches. <laughs> Jesus never said anything about the churches. Jesus never said anything about abortion. Jesus said lots of stuff about we doing justice. And, you know, we can't do justice unless we have truth. So, but I see my, my role in, in all of this is I know a little bit about some things that are very important. I can speak the truth without any hemming, without any, uh, any borders on what I say. And with truth, you know, then you can get justice. And, and when you talk about peace, well, in the biblical sense, Katie, uh, peace is shalom, is just the existence the presence of justice, okay? So when we look at our country and we see it uh, paying inordinate amounts to enrich people who build armaments and, and arms and all that kind of stuff, and when we christen, christen, mind you, uh, battle, battle ships or whatever they call them these days, destroyers and everything, you know, a sort of a, it's a sacrilege really because what should we should be doing is taking care of our own, and the other people will will kind of uh, see that uh, Russia poses no threat to us. Now, oh, wait a second! What did you say, McGovern? I said 
Russia faces no no threat to us, and that's why, if you're looking for a reason, that's why we have no artillery shells. <laughs> Hello? The Soviet Union fell apart 32 years ago. Why do you want to, why do you have to build artillery shells? You know, you don't, okay? And so we didn't. And then now, now we say, oh, where are the artillery shells? Oh, we don't. No, they're all. We're low on it, and oh, NATO, no, they don't. Why don't, if NATO is so afraid of Russia, why don't they have shells, you know? So, you know, it all kind of fits together. Russia was not even said rhetorically to be a threat against NATO or the United States until the 13th, I'm sorry, the 15th of February, 2014, the day after we overthrew the duly elected government in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and put in some rabid anti-Russian people who said, first thing, let's join NATO. So that's the provocation. Unprovoked? <laughs> Give me a break. They must think they're little kids. This was provoked, this war. Now, it's a legitimate argue, argument as to whether... Putin could have done anything else. I've looked at all the evidence. That was our job, okay? And I can say that, as John Mearsheimer said eight years ago, this is the fault of the West. Professors say 98%. I say 100%. It wouldn't have happened if we didn't try to bring NATO into Ukraine, into NATO. And we were warned about that very specifically. We did it anyway. Well, thank you so much. And I think what you just said, you, you know, you can argue, people can argue about whether it was justifiable. You can't argue about whether it was provoked, I would say. It was so obviously provoked. Oh, hang on for a second, Katie. Justifiable is not my bag. In other words, uh, intelligence analysts, uh, you can call us whatever, but we don't make moral judgments, okay? In other words... Oh, so you were saying it's just, he had... You were saying he strategically didn't have other options. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that if you look at Putin and you consider his primary job protecting the Russian people, okay. that he had exhausted all his options and the ways that he could get, thought he could get the U.S. and the rest of NATO to cooperate all fell apart. People laughed at him for trying while they built up the Ukrainian army. So I lay it all out have come speeches. I want to tell just one thing here. After I made one speech, it was for, uh, for up in Massachusetts, okay? Uh, the, the comments, one guy says, uh, oh, so McGovern's saying it's justified. He's making excuses. And another fellow happened to be a friend of mine. He's a psychiatrist. He said, wait a second. McGovern never said it was justified. Uh, McGovern never said anything like that. Uh, but... The facts that he adduced, that's curious. You you inferred that he was justifying it. So in other words, you're saying, oh, he justified. No, he laid out the facts. You thought he justified it. Now, justified, you know, I have my own personal opinion. It doesn't matter if I bring anything to the table. It's as a realist, as an intelligence analyst, we don't deal in moral questions. Got it. Okay. 
Well, what I was going to say, but thank you for correcting me. And I say that sincerely, not sarcastically. But what I was going to say is that regardless of, of that issue, I, I was going to say that I think everyone can agree that if you care about humanity and civilians, civilian lives of Ukrainians, that this is not sustainable, what the West is doing. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And please come back because I have so many more questions for you and the audience loves you. So I'm not too old. No. Oh, we were de- we were defending Bernie's age. <laughs> I know. Hey, uh, my website is raymcgovern.com. Also on Twitter at, at Ray McGovern. Okay, great. Thanks, Katie. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Bye. That was Ray McGovern. What an amazing interview and such a fascinating person to talk to. We are going to move on to our next guest, but please like the stream. I mean, that really deserves a like. He's really an amazing guest, but we must move on. The show must go on because we have another excellent guest. We are going to bring him on right now. His name is Freddie DeBoer. He is a writer. He is the author of The Cult of Smart which is a book that has already come out that you can get, The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice, and the forthcoming book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. So welcome, Freddie. Howdy. Hi, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you wrote a piece recently about AOC for New York Magazine, basically saying that she is just a regular old Democrat. Right. What made you write this piece? You know, I just think that people like you and me, I mean, I was, you know, we were in contact when all this stuff was happening in 2016. uh, And in the immediate years after, there was a sense that something big was happening and that the Democratic Party might finally be changing, that there was a real chance for meaningful socialist change within the apparatus of the party. (laughs) And uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was a a major sort of element, a symbol of this sort of evolution in the party. And the the evolution more or less didn't happen. Um, There's been some progress in terms of uh, uh, the direction of the the Democratic Party. I think that things could definitely be worse. But the sense in which there's going to be, for me anyway, the sense that there's going to be a sort of muscular and influential leftist wing, socialist wing of the party that uh, plays a a deep role in setting the policy agenda that has a chance of taking control of the party in terms of congressional leadership or the presidential nomination. I think that dream is, is more or less dead. Um, I I do think that Bernie Sanders um, is sort of one of one in terms of being uh, a political force and a political personality and the sort of much ballyhooed, you know, sort of Bernie machine that we, we thought was getting built just was really just about the one guy in, in the particular moment. Um, there are worse things than being a regular old Democrat, right? I mean, I think that um, <clears throat> there's a lot of things about the piece that have been sort of misrepresented. I don't think that uh, AOC is a bad person. And I've said, I said on Breaking Points recently that, um, look, if I was going to be voting between AOC or one of the machine party Democrats that she replaced, um, I would vote for AOC. But the premise of the piece was simply to let's look at her actual legislative record. 
let's look at some of the behaviors that she's engaged in uh, as a public intellectual and uh, public face of the party and, and just as a politician and, you know, actually ask, do these match our values uh, for one thing, but also is there a clear sort of a uh, sense of what she thinks her role in the democratic party is. And the, the, the bigger sort of conclusion of the piece is just that I don't think what, what she's done is particularly coherent I don't think that you can look at her her, her voting record and <clears throat> sort of figure out a sort of sense of why she votes the way she votes in any particular situation. And I also felt that, the, you know, going on the Pod Save America podcast, right, which is the heart of institutional liberalism sort of messaging apparatus, which is like it is it is the epicenter of sort of Obama thought, right, which is exactly what she was at one point meant to represent the sort of the antidote to, to go on that podcast to endorse Joe Biden. At this point in the cycle, to me, it was a message to everybody, right? Um, She could have not endorsed at all. She could have endorsed in, you know, March of 2024, uh, or she could have sent out a one-sentence press release and said, I'm endorsing Joe Biden for president in 2024, right? To go on that show and buddy up with these centrists and <clears throat> use that opportunity to say, I don't I don't want to hear about any progressive challengers to Biden. To me, that was a very loaded moment, and I felt like it needed a response. Yeah, let's actually watch that clip for a trigger warning. You're about to see Positive America, which deserves a trigger warning, and also about to see AOC endorse Biden. So let's take a look at this. President's only primary opponents are Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Haven't been any rumors about anyone else even thinking about jumping in. Will you be supporting Joe Biden for re-election? Uh, I believe given that field, yes. I think he's done quite well, uh, given the limitations that we have. Um, I do think that there are ebbs and flows, uh, as there are in any president, uh, in any presidency. You know, I, there are areas that I think were quite strong when he came right out of the gate with the American Rescue Plan. And of course, the Inflation Reduction Act was a massive step in terms of our climate agenda. But, you know, there are also areas that I think could have gone better. We have major structural issues in this country, and it start. I think it starts with the United States Senate, um, and I think that until we have senators that are willing to stand up and stare the filibuster in the eye and stare a lot of structural issues about the Senate, the United States Senate will be what holds back this country from an enormous amount of progress. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things you can immediately say there. The first is that. The person who's interviewing her is John Favreau, who was once Obama's chief speechwriter. And I mean, this is a point that I think people were kind of being sort of intentionally misleading about. Um, He and that podcast um, have, in effect, been the public face of Obamaism since the end of Obama's presidency. Right. Like, I mean, there, there is nothing that he says uh, Favreau or the rest of the hosts, who are all of them, I think all four of them were involved in some way or another in the Obama administration. There's nothing that they said that has not been sort of vetted by the Obama machine, right? So, so again, like, I, you know, 
I expected the piece to be controversial, and it's fine that it was. I thought there was a real intentional avoiding of sort of like, you don't hear a word about the fact that Biden is 80 years old, right? You don't hear a word about the fact that it's only uh, July of 2023 in which this is happening, or even June, maybe, when that clip came out. Um, <clears throat> you've got to sort of leave open the idea that somebody is going to step forward and say, you know, I want to be the one to, if nothing else, challenge Biden from the left to get the things that you say that you want. I mean, and again, it gets back to the strategic incoherence. What does endorsing now do for you? How does it advance your agenda at all? And I also think that it's very funny that she's talking about how important reforming the Senate is. Joe Biden was a senator for a very long time. Joe Biden, as much as anyone in the in the, uh, our pol- political system, is directly responsible for the student loan debt crisis. Joe Biden, when he was a senator, was someone who contributed massively to the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration, which is something that AOC uh, complains about constantly. Joe Biden was the furthest thing from a champion for a champion of a humane and just immigration policy. So if what you care about is the Senate and you're here talking about who you're choosing for president, you think that you'd let his Senate career influence your endorsement. Yeah. And as you pointed out, um, this is a show that has a very problematic attitude, I would say, uh, towards voter shaming. Let's take another look at a clip from Pod Save America. If the people who voted for Jill Stein, just Jill Stein, in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania had voted for Hillary instead, Donald Trump would have never become president. That's it, right? And so, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of Cornell West fans out there. Um, You live in a swing state, you vote for Cornell West, you're helping Trump become president. That's it. And you can say, oh, well, it's Joe Biden's fault he did this or that. No, no, no. It's, It's your decision. You get to decide whether you want to help Donald Trump become president or you don't. By the way, I like the, the suggestion that it's the only people with agency are voters. Joe Biden has no, no agency. Right. He has no decisions to make. If I were to define sort of the difference between Republicans and Democrats, and in particular, like why Republicans so often seem to be more effective at what, getting what they want than Democrats, I think one of the primary things I would name is um, Republicans never act like it's the responsibility of the voters to vote for them. They always act like it's the responsibility of the politician to get the vote, right? I mean, I think this is like a really basic and simple democratic principle. It is the responsibility of the politician to win the vote of the people. These Jill Stein voters, they have no obligation to support Hillary Clinton. That's not how this works. That's not, the the voters don't every four years in November go to the candidate and say, am I good enough to be your voter? No, it's the other, it works the other way around, right? You know, the, the, the granddaddy of all of this is Ralph Nader, right? And there's, it's a famous reality that, well, 33,000 uh, registered Democrats in uh, Florida voted for Ralph Nader in, uh, in 2000. Had they voted for Al Gore, Al Gore would have won the presidency, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> what doesn't get mentioned is that 325,000 registered Democrats in that uh, in Florida in that election 
voted for George Bush. In other words, Al Gore ran such an incompetent campaign, such an empty, vacuous, incompetent campaign, that uh, more than 10 times or something like 10 times as many Democrats in Florida voted for George Bush as voted for Ralph Nader. This fact is never brought up by people like They're never voter famed. Right. Those people are not voter shooting. Also, Gore won. That's the other thing. Right. Gore won. But. Right. That's yeah. right. And then, I mean, like, but, but you know, it's, you can blame the Supreme Court and it's, and it's corruption, or you can blame some hippies in Pensacola who were never going to vote for Al Gore anyway. Right. You know, I mean, I, but I just think that, like, John Favreau could not, to, to my mind, could not possibly be a better avatar of, like, institutional liberalism right? The worship of process, uh, constantly telling people to slow down. You can't have the things that you, that you say you want and that you need, uh, be reasonable. It always, always, always vote Democrat. And again, like this is something that AOC explicitly ran against in 2018, right? (laughs) Since I've had all this negative response to the article, I've, you know, I've gotten a lot of emails where I've just, um, copy and pasted, uh, <clears throat> news articles from 2018 where I just put AOC's words back into the response, right? Like, I'm not making up the fact that she said that she was an antidote to institutional democratic politics, right? That's something that she said, and it's, you know, it's appropriate to ask why her values have changed. By the way, just totally anecdotal, but this is Elliot, who wrote a super chat, writes, I wrote F. Biden on my ballot in 2020. If West is not there, it's not like I'll vote for Biden. Yeah, I mean, again, like the 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 conception that any left leaning voter is necessarily a Democrat, right? Uh, <clears throat> just like that, we all necessarily have to do that. Again, it's the sort of thing like, <clears throat> like why, right? Like what 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 is it about you know simply being on the left hand side that makes you think that you're entitled to our votes? And by the way. Uh, one thing that John Favreau definitely didn't mention is Gary Johnson, who was the libertarian candidate for president in 2016, got more votes than Jill Stein. So <clears throat> the the third party vote in 2016 helped Hillary Clinton. It didn't hurt. Her. Yeah. Your piece goes through a couple of examples of AOC's kind of maybe like worst moments. And one of the, I think, the critiques that is pretty undeniable is that she is not consistent in her use of symbolism, right? So you give examples of how she makes a symbolic vote sometimes, makes a non-symbolic vote other times. Can you kind of trace that for, for viewers and listeners? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time.